Father, as we sing Psalm 23 together, we just give you thanks for the God that you are, for the ways that you comfort us, for the ways that you promise to be with us in all circumstances, for the ways that we share our greatest moments with you and, and give you adoration and praise, and that you're the same God that when we're in our deepest pit, we cry out to you and you are there too, for your constancy and for your faithfulness, for the goodness of your character. And for being the God of our, our yesterdays, our today, and our tomorrows, Father, we just say thank you. And, um, and we ask now, too, as we come back to your word and look at another psalm, uh, that you would speak to us in these pages, that you'd take these ancient words and, and make them come alive through the same Holy Spirit that inspired their penning so many years ago, would now write these words more deeply into our own hearts. And Father, we claim this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the questions I'm always wrestling with is thinking about what is, what is the next step of growth in faith? Every time I'm sitting down and talking with another student, we're talking about how do I get from my today to my tomorrow? Like what is the next step and movement in my growth? And why is it sometimes that we feel stalled out in this middle place? The imagery I had in my head thinking about this and as I read through Psalm 63 this week was of, of learning to drive standard in the gear shift and that, that movement, that place, that sort of sticking point you get between third and fourth or fourth and fifth as you're really trying to work your way through these stages of growth and maturity in the Christian walk. And there's something that happens too even in that in-between space. I remember the first time I was learning how to drive standard, I took a year off of school um, after I filled out a college the first time and I was paying some debts back at the time and I'm learning to drive a truck and there was all these gears and my instructor kept telling me, well, if you can't find them, grind them. And there was a lot of grinding going on between these gears that I was looking for. As I was sharing this with my wife last night, she said, I remember the first time you taught me how to drive standard. We bought our second vehicle in Canada, which was a stick shift at the time, and I never thought that she was going to have to drop, hop in it, and I drive the first one home, and she drive the second, and she'd never done this before. And she said, I took comfort in the fact that you were behind me, and you had explained everything about it to me, but the thing I think that best describes this analogy of faith growth being like working through the gears in a stick shift is like, she said, I knew the engine was there, and I could, had to learn how to get in tune with it. I didn't generate the power. I don't create the horsepower but I had to find the movements in the rhythm of the RPM and I had to be the one at the same time to actually move the stick shift and engage the work that, that this engine was doing. And what a great example and metaphor, I think, for how we experience God is the engine that moves and drives us. Our sanctification isn't coming through our own creation. It's God. But there's a role that he asks us to play where we engage ourselves into the process. I think one of those most significant movements of spiritual growth is this transition that takes place where we stop having an immature faith that is reactionary to everything in the world around us. Where our faith isn't something that we're carrying along in a backpack that when we encounter something running out front, we pull from it and we remember a passage or we pull out a prayer and we're actually running in front of God. But rather we, we transition to a point where he's actually in front of us. Where the filter through which we are experiencing the world isn't come God coming along beside us, but a realization that God is in front of us. And we move from having a circumstantial theology, a prayer life that's based in its, its frequency and its fervency, not on what we're encountering in our day, but rather that started from the character of God. 
I guess I would refer to this as a difference between a circumstantial theology and a hesed theology. For anybody who studied Hebrew or, or looked through the pages over and over in the Old Testament, this, this concept of hesed comes up over and over again. Traditionally, in King James English, this is defi- defined as uh, the loving kindness of God, but the term is so much bigger than this. It's a, it's a, a, a love loyalty. It's, it's something that can't be moved and can't be shaken. It's what we're trying to move into as believers so they're not just simply reacting to the world around us and experiencing the world in a circumstantial type of theology and how we see God and how we implore him to, to join us in our engagement of the world, but rather how our engagement of the world is actually born out of his steadfastness, his loyalty of love, his loving kindness. It's a word that David uses throughout his engagement in the Psalms of his experience and interaction with God. And it comes across in Psalm 63 that we're going to look at today. And I want to walk through that passage with you. Psalm 63. We'll take this a little bite by bite. Verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. The little subscript that comes at the beginning um, of, this, of this psalm, Psalm 63, says a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. This explains, of course, the, the longing, the thirsting, being in a dry place in, his, in the desert. But what's important to remember is that David actually spent three significant seasons of his life in desert. Of course, when he was a child growing up, he would take his father's flocks and they would go out into this desert territory. This is the place where he is now again. Three seasons. One, when he was a a child doing this with his father's flocks. Two, when he's fleeing from Saul. And three, when he's fleeing from his own son, Absalom. These three seasons of his life have taken him back to this desert of Judah, this wilderness, this east of Jerusalem territory. So as he comes back, this is a place where he was as a boy. And so often when we talk about desert seasons or dry seasons as followers of God, we're talking about a time when we feel like God's voice isn't quite as loud as it's been in past times, or we don't feel him quite as close. Desert seasons are also this time where God does amazing work within us. Remember when David was a boy, the things that he's doing here are developing the heart of a king. It's watching his father's sheep in the desert, in this same place, Where David picks up instruments and learns to play them and finds a voice of worship. I imagine him falling asleep under the stars. He could be attacked by some wild animal or be vulnerable to marauders or raiders or or, or thieves or anything along these lines. And he's got to learn to fall asleep and actually let his soul be at rest in knowing that God is watching him. Even though his guard is down and he's vulnerable under the blanket of darkness under which he sleeps. It's here where David learns how to contemplate God. How to think deep thoughts about who this God is and who he is before him. David, at this point in time, remember when Samuel comes to his father to say one of your sons is going to be the king of Israel. David is still an afterthought in his own father's mind because he's still out in the desert and in the wilderness. But it is here that God is refining him and shaping him. He's fighting bears. He's fighting off lions. He's learning to be a warrior. He's learning to be um, a musician. He's learning to be a contemplative of God. God does not waste desert seasons in life. 
I've had conversations so many times with so many of you who have been frustrated at times. Like a, like a horse in the starting gate, you kind of get a little frustrated at times in college because you feel like God's working your heart to engage the world and you want to leave and you want to you be on the front lines and not just sort of sitting back. And it feels that almost in some sense it's like this is a desert season. You're not on the front lines. David's brothers are off at war. They're at the front lines. They're the ones who are engaging the enemy. David's stuck watching the sheep. And yet all the while, whose heart is God making into the next great king? Desert seasons are absolutely vital to our development as followers of God. And so the next time you're in a season of life where it feels like God is a little bit silent or, or you're chomping at the bit and it looks like others are engaging God and his world more fully, know that God is busy in this time. I think this is why we recognize the season of Advent and waiting, because it is in waiting that God teaches us so much. It feels like such an idle time to us. It feels like neutral when we're in the desert season. But we need to take comfort in the fact that God's loving kindness and his loyal love does not leave us alone in these seasons, but rather he is working deeply within us in these times. So this is all happening in David's youth, and you can see as his faith begins to progress in the desert season where he's fleeing back to this places where he experienced God as a boy, as Saul is chasing him, David won't go out and kill Saul. David won't go out and fight him. He's learning to let God's plan in life unfold, and his trust is moving deeper and deeper into the character of God. David is not reaching out and taking every opportunity that comes for him. He's waiting for this kingdom to be given to him. He is resting in the goodness and the promises of God. He's learning not to run in front of God. He's learning to let God be in front of him and to know his place. But how confused David must have been in this third season. And most biblical scholars believe that it's in this third season in the wilderness under which Psalm 63 is written. David has become king. He's gone to Jerusalem. He's got his palace built. They are at an incredible stage in Israel's history. All the promises of God are coming to pass. David's finally getting to rest. This The seasons of fighting and fighting are, are about to be over. And now from within his own household, his own son turns on him. And he flees from him back to this place where he was as a boy. Back where he was when he was fleeing from Saul. And what strikes me almost more than anything else in this psalm is that when David starts off writing it, he doesn't talk about the fact that he's running away from an enemy. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. His running from an enemy in David's eyes through the refined faith that he has experienced in God is actually in pursuit of God and not a running from his enemies. And I long for a faith that is so mature and worked into my being that when I'm running away from something in this world, I don't see it as running away from it, but running to God. That even fears don't dictate the directions of my life. That whatever my circumstances are, however bad this day might get, it's not a circumstantial view of God that I'm developing but a Hesed reflection of his loyal love to me and my loyal love that I'm learning back to him. I think any one of us in an opening line in a prayer to God running from an enemy would start with some sort of mention of the enemy or what we're running from. But a heart that has been shaped in the desert seasons speaks very clearly that he is running to God. Earnestly I seek you. Uh, earlier translations of this passage talk about early I seek you. 
Already by the 4th century, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Church, incorporated this psalm, this part of this psalm, into the daily prayer liturgy of the church, talking about the fact that this is where we need to start. This is the place you've got to come back to again and again. Every day, as a believer, to come back to this place where we start in a pursuit of God. Where we start with a reminder that this day is going to come out of, this day is going to be experienced out of His loving kindness, and we're not going to react merely to it. Keeps going, verse 2. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods whom with singing lips my mouth will praise you. I have seen you in the sanctuary. If I'm running from something, the sanctuary that I'm craving is probably a fortress. I would imagine David should have been imagining being back in the palace, but instead the sanctuary that he's talking about is the place of worship. I've been there, David says. He's reminding his own soul and saying it back to God as well. I've been in the moments where you've revealed yourself to me, and I know who you are. And he finds refuge in sanctuary and just reminiscing and remembering these things. He's longing for Jerusalem, but not the fortress of its walls, but the presence of God and being before the ark. And he talks about this because your love is better than life. Like, I would trade off my life for that. I want to be there. And the love that he's speaking of, this is the word Hesed that I was talking about. It's your loving kindness. It's your loyal love. It's the fact that you never fail. I will trade that in, God, over anything else that the world has to offer. I will trade that in even over to the ability to protect my own life. That's what I want. I was challenged by this line thinking if I'm actually ready to say that and pray that out loud. It's one thing to preach it in a sermon. It's another thing to pray it from my heart when no one else is looking. Does my life say that your love is better than my life? The decisions that I make and the way that I interact with people, the way that I encounter the struggles of everyday living, do they say that your love and trust in your love and your permanence is greater than the world that I can create for myself? Am I making the trade and the transaction of trading in a circumstantial theology for a hesed theology that David is in this passage? Maybe I'm still between gears and I'm still trying to find it. The trading in. Maybe if there was one line to take away and just memorize and sear into your mind to return to again and again is whether or not we can pray this and pray it with an ever-increasing conviction. Because your love is better than life. And I'll lift up my hands. David did some reminiscing in this passage, and I did a little bit of reminiscing of my own when I came across this line and just sort of sat in it for a while. This is what I love about the Psalms. You read them slower than you read stories. And you just sort of sit in the words and you let them take you places. I remember the exact place where I was sitting the first time I ever raised my hands in worship. And it wasn't about a new decision about what style of worship I was interested in or what instrument was getting played at the front. I remember after a whole lot of work that God had been doing in my life, I was a senior at Dort College and I was sitting right there. And Robert Taylor, strangely enough, was actually already on drums. And 
And Gift had just started, and I remember the lights in here were all dark, and this song came up written by David Ruiz called We Will Dance. And it was an invitation to sort of look at your life today from where it is that we are all headed. And I thought about what this meant in my own life. There was a new level of surrender that had to take place. And I remember sort of closing my eyes, hoping that nobody was going to see me. And for the first time, it felt like some... You always have these moments. Every one of us has moments where we remember back. Something significant happened in the way God shaped you in those moments and those memories. And there was something that happened to me in that moment where I sort of let God have a new level of control. As I look back, that might have been the move from first to second gear in the growth development that God was working in my life. I was so spiritually immature, and I'm so inspired by you guys time and time again of where you are at in your faith and the hunger you have for God. And Gift was just starting at that time, and it was the end of my senior year, and for the first time, I willingly went to a worship setting, like of my own heart's volition. And I remember hearing that song and raising my hands, and it felt like everything, if your gun is pointed at you and you're surrendering, if you want to receive, um, like a child does, an embrace of a father, it's, it's, it's a reaching up and, and, and asking for a father to, to, to wrap you up in his arms. It's, it's, an, it's a declaration of, of allegiance. Um, it's, an, it's an openness of person and of spirit to whatever it is. It's, it's a position of vulnerability. And I remember thinking all of these things as they're coming through my mind and sort of had this image as I read this line of, I remember that. I remember, that, I remember it as a moment saying, God, I'm, I'm giving you something I've never given you before. And I want whatever it is you're offering. And I don't know what tomorrow looks like. But I know that the tomorrow you want to create is better than the today that I'm creating for myself. And I think that that's sort of indicative of of that, that moment where the Spirit is pulling us and drawing us and enticing us further into the love of God, saying, hand over one more thing to me. Give me something new. The Psalms do that for us. I lift my arms in surrender and in deliverance, in allegiance, in petition, and in openness. David goes on to talk, I'll be fully satisfied with the richest of foods. A literal translation here is actually marrow and fatness. That's what I want, which is strange because David would have known his Old Testament well enough to know that in Leviticus 3.16, the fat is actually the part of what you bring before God that you don't get to eat, but it only gets burned on the altar, and that's what creates the whole smell. So I always try to remember that when they would gather and worship, their churches didn't smell like bad coffee and pine salt. Their churches, their place of worship smelled more like a famous Dave's. I mean, there's just barbecue going constant, right? And David's palace was incredibly close David's palace in Jerusalem was incredibly close to the altar where these things were taking place. I imagine David as a king waking up doing his devotions in the morning, smelling, the first sense being engaged, smelling the offerings of the people of a nation coming before God, saying, we're laying our best before you. We want everything that you have to offer. And just smelling and invoking his senses in this process. It's beautiful. David's saying, I'm on the run right now. We're probably eating terrible. I don't know what he takes with him, um, a little cake of, of figs or of bread or whatever they can scrounge up as they're running along on the run as refugees. But the meal that David longs for is the one part of food he can't even have. It's the smell. It's the aroma. It's the participation of worship in God. It's not, God, feed my own gut, but take me back to the place where I see worship being given over to you. I want to be at the place where in my deepest moments of running from the things of this world, 
My longings are not for my own stomach, but for the stomach of my heart and my soul. And the psalm takes me there. Verse 6. This almost begins to sound like Song of Songs. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Sounds like he's writing a love story or a poem. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Even as darkness comes, it's one more opportunity for David. And I'm imagining him remembering what it would have been like for him as a boy to fall asleep under the stars, unguarded, unprotected, knowing the only thing between you and death is God, knowing that your life is not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to another. And he's reminded of the vulnerability as he's taken back there again. He's not in a palace surrounded by guards who will protect his life. He knows that it is only God who reigns from the throne. It is only God who is in control of his life. This is one of these beautiful psalms of total and complete surrender. If you need one more to memorize to take you through, this is sort of an all occasions type of psalm. It's not just when there's a new king. It's not just when you've done something horrible in your life and you're feel, feeling penitent and want to come before God in remorse and repentance. I mean, this is just sort of the all-encompassing. I'm handing my life over. God, I want to go from third to fourth here. I want to go from fourth to fifth. I want to go wherever it is that you haven't taken me yet. I want to move away from circumstantial theology into hesed theology. And I want to rest in your being and in your presence and in your promises. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, already in the fourth century, said this in reflection on this psalm. He said it was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of Psalm 63. It was decreed and ordained by the primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of Psalm 63. I need to come back here. And I need to revisit this place. How these psalms take us to reminisce. How these psalms take us back to ideas and, and memories of our own childhood or times when God has been God for us. As we close today and you receive a parting blessing, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. Uh, will you please rise? And stick with me in this, even if it makes you just a little bit uncomfortable, you brush the neighbor beside you in the process. I want to ask you if you would all close your eyes. And maybe it's what your heart needs more than anything else today is, is a, a posture of openness. Maybe it's a new declaration of allegiance because there's been given to something else. Maybe it's surrender. I want to ask you now as I give you a parting blessing to take your hands and find a position that looks like openness or surrender. Nobody else is looking at you. This is just between you and your father. Put your hands where you want to put them. Tell them what you want to tell them with your whole being. And receive this blessing. Children of God, you were made to run on the fuel of your Father. You were made to stand out in this world not because you run from things, but because you are always running to Him. And you were to be people relieved of your fears. 
Not because our lives are to become easy in our God, but because they are to become more purposeful. Where we find our meaning and our identity in Him. May you with great confidence go forward. May you surrender to the next level of growth that God is calling you to. May your theology not be built on whatever happens today, but on your God who has loved you and is loving you and will love you. Under the watch and the care and the arms and the eyes of your Alpha and Omega, go in peace to love and serve your King. Amen.